0: Well, amen. We are grateful that we have a living hope. And that ties right into where we're going this morning. Uh, If you you watch or read the first book in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, this is how it starts. They're getting ready for a birthday party for Bilbo Baggins. He's turning a, a crazy old age, and part of this party, they're waiting for Gandalf the wizard to arrive. And so Frodo, who will go on to be the main character, He's waiting, and as as Gandalf comes down the road, Frodo looks at him and says, you're late. To which Gandalf promptly replies back and says, Frodo Baggins, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he intends to. Now I tell you that because as we walk through the rest of Daniel chapter nine the morning, what we're gonna find there's a passage that reminds us that our God is never late, and in the fullness of time, He does everything He says and intends to. And so I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, turn back with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 20. If you remember last week, and we, we've got to go back and remember where we went last week. Daniel 9, uh, Daniel has, we find Daniel at the beginning of the chapter uh, pouring through the written Word of God. Specifically, he is reading the written word of Jeremiah the prophet, and he, and he sees likely either Jeremiah chapter 25 or Jeremiah chapter 29, where, where Jeremiah is, is telling the people for 70 years, God's going to take you into exile, and as, as Daniel's reading this, he's not just simply reading it, but he is, he's heeding it. He's thinking about it. He's processing it. He's taking it to heart, and he's realizing that 70 years is about to come due. And as he realizes that, it spurs him into action, action because he desperately wants to see his people taken back to their proper land, see the temple restored, proper worship come back, but he realizes that the sin of his people, their true, the true root of idolatry hasn't been dealt with, so we find and we walk through his prayers, he declares the greatness and glory of God, as he confesses he and his people's sin, as, as, as he repents. God, we're wrong. You're right. And as he calls and implores God, O oh God, incline your ear hear. open your eyes, see the desolations, the city which is called by your name. We're not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion, O oh Lord, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake, O oh my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name, he petitions in light of the goodness and greatness of God that God's favor would return and restore the people. You catch the passion with which he is praying. He is looking for God's solution to his people's exile. And it says this, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting, or literally speaking, he's praying out loud, my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering." Here's what's going on. There's there's Daniel. He's clearly been praying for a prolonged period of time. He's praying out loud and he's praying specifically when it says, on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, he is, at the heart of his prayer, is wanting to see God's restoration, to see revival, restore his people, the people of God, the the people of Israel, back to their rightful place and rightful worship, walking in rightful obedience. He is praying for God's will amongst God's people. And while he was doing this, he says, then the man, and by man he doesn't mean a human flesh and blood. He's referring to Gabriel the angel. By man what he means is Gabriel appeared to him in, in a form that looked humanoid. We'll put it that way. Gabriel's not one of those angels who's covered in eyeballs with six different wings and four different heads. He, he, he just looked like an angelic-looking man. And so Gabriel appears, appears to him, he'd previously seen Gabriel in a vision. The imp- emphasis now is he's not having a vision. He's, he's in the here and now, the physical world, and Gabriel appears. And notice what it says, in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, we're not going to uh, delay here long, but the reality is the evening offering was about three o'clock in the afternoon when in, at the temple they would lay on the sacrifice the afternoon sacrifice uh, for the people's sin, and, and you would see the smoke of that sacrifice go up before God, a reminder of, of the sinfulness of the people, of, of, of the need for God's forgiveness and His graciousness. And, and these sacrifices hadn't been offered for almost 70 years. But Daniel, who is so deeply serious about seeking and walking with the Lord, he, he doesn't operate off of Babylonian standard time. He's still operating off of The worship of the one true God time. He's been praying for hours. In fact, his prayer has been so deep and so passionate, he is at a point of extreme exhaustion from the intensity of his time in prayer. And in this moment, Gabriel comes and comes near, and here's what he says He gave me instruction and spoke with me. And he said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command or the decree, the word, was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, or quite literally, you are of immense precious value. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So here's what Gabriel says. He says, Daniel, I I am here. To give you insight, I'm here to help you understand something, and and the goal, the goal of what I'm about to tell you for you, is not whether you're going to get the answer you want. It's that you understand what I'm about to tell you. It means you're going to have to put on your thinking cap. This isn't just a little devotional message so you can spur a little feeling. You, you, You you need to understand what's coming. You need to put your mind, your spirit in check. You need… I've come to help you understand. And then in the midst of that, he says this, at the beginning of whenever you started praying… Now, it doesn't say when Daniel started, but we know he's been praying for hours with unbelievable passion. he He is weary. He is exhausted. Can you imagine being Daniel? You've pulled out the Scriptures. You recognize you're paying heed to what the Word says. Seventy years, you're calculating, you realize it's almost 70 years. The people are not ready. It's our not time there. We know Daniel, he's down on his knees for hours. He's got his window open facing Jerusalem just in passion and agony, confessing the sin of his people, declaring the greatness and glory of his God, repenting. Can you imagine potentially having the thought as he's there for hour upon hour, God, where are you? I don't hear an answer, what are you, the doubts that could come flooding in, yet look at what, we get a little glimpse where heaven is peeled back and open to us, and Gabriel says, Daniel, the moment your knees hit the ground and your mouth started praying, God heard exactly what you said, and in heaven he gave an order to send a word to you. God wasn't aloof, he wasn't blind, he was exactly where his word said he was being eyes scouring the earth to and fro, looking to greatly aid the heart that is truly here, truly His, waiting to hear the prayer of the one who would humble himself and confess his sin and turn from his wicked ways to the Lord. Far from being aloof and distant, what may have felt like silence to Daniel was not silence, it was just the time it took God to send the answer in Gabriel. And if I can just give you an aside, church family, this is not the point of the sermon, but, but it, it's, it's a point that we've seen subtly thus far in Daniel, and we'll see it much more next week. But can I just tell you, church family, obedience and faithfulness matters to God. When we're faithful, God does, in fact, pay attention, no matter if we think He does or doesn't. He notices, even if He seems silent or seems slow, His eyes were on Daniel. Church family, God hears the prayers of His people no matter how weary and how much we feel like our prayers hit the ceiling. And our God shows Himself to be a God who's in the business of responding to the prayer of His people. He delights to answer and guide us. And some of us are consumed in moments, and I'm not exempt, when it seems like God is silent and and the enemy starts throwing some doubt. You're not good enough for God to hear you. Well, I've got news for us, church family. None of us are good enough for God. That's why I sent Jesus. Because only Jesus is good enough. And if you're in Christ, guess what? You're good enough by virtue of Christ. There are real times as you and I seek. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. By grace through faith, you've been saved. There are real times as you seek to walk with God, He is going to feel distant and seem silent, and you are going to have real questions. God, where are you? What are you doing? I do not understand. To quote the psalm from David that Jesus quoted on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are so far from the cry of my day, from the groaning at night. There are times that's what it's going to feel and seem like. But I want you to see, church family, that if you and I as His children are truly humbling ourselves and putting ourselves before Him to pray as we saw how to pray last week, to pray His will based on His good good character, delighting for His good favor, when you and I do that, God hears our prayer, and God will answer. And let me also tell you this. God's answer to Daniel wasn't necessarily an answer to Daniel's direct prayer. It was not for Daniel to get the answer Daniel wanted. It was for Daniel to understand what God is doing. Sometimes we will pray and God will answer. But the answer may not be exactly what we expect or are looking for. It will be an answer to help us understand who he is and what he is doing. We need to know how God responds. He hears and answers the prayers of his people. And So here's what Daniel says. He says, I want you to give heed to the message. I want you to pay attention. I want you to use your mind. Use your discernment here. He says this, 70 weeks is probably how your Bible will translate it. Now, literally, it's 77s. It's just weeks seems to flow a little easier. Now, for the sake of not confusing you here, because we're about to hit one of the most confusing prophecies in all of the Word of God, I'm going to use the word sevens in a literal way so that you're not getting confused by what's a week and what's a year and what's a this, because there's a lot. So 70 weeks, seventy sevens have been decreed for your people, have literally been cut out, set apart, and marked aside for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, of a command, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, that is the anointed one, the prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come like a flood. Even to the end there will be war, for desolations are determined, decreed. And he, being the prince who is to come will make a covenant with the many, meaning the people of Israel, for one week, for one seven. But in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations, one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, that I've thoroughly confused you Let's walk through this and understand what it is God is doing. You see, because here's God's answer. It says it says, Jeremiah, you're, you're praying. You recognize the 70 years are coming to completion. You're focused on one thing. I want to open up and really show you what all I'm actually doing. You're seeing 70 years. I want to tell you about 77, 70 weeks now, some have wondered what, what exactly, and then we say seventy-sevens, or weeks. We're talking about something that is symbolic, and in this case, weeks is symbolic for years. Symbolic for years. It fits the context of Daniel's prayer, seventy years. We know elsewhere from other passages of Scripture that he's dealing with dealing with years. He's, and so God says, seventy-sevens. Uh, which if you're multiplying, that's 490 years, have been decreed for your people. And he says six things are going to take place. At the end of these 490 years, there's going to be six things that take place. One, the finishing of the transgression. The finishing of the transgression. Now, what does he mean by the finishing of the transgression? Well, he's talking, remember, context The context of this passage is not all of human history and every tongue and tribe. The context, specifically, is the nation of Israel. The one actual geopolitical people of God called out, set apart from from the day of Abraham. He's talking about them, and, and, and what is putting a finish to the transgression? Well, it would be the people of Israel's continual rejection of who God is at God's Word. That continues to today says, so, so the, the time of Israel's rebellion will come to an end. Not only that, but let's broaden it even bigger. We're going to make an end. We're going to seal up. We're going to bind up all sin. That at the end of these 490 years, sin will cease. The effects of sin will cease. It will be bound up, it will be locked up, and it will be no more. Not only that, and ultimately, we know the reason it will cease is because in this time, there will be an atonement for iniquity. Literally, there will be a covering. Here Here is this sin, this transgression, this which in thought, feeling, action, violates the very character and nature of God, which eternally separates us by birth, from a relationship with our Creator, this sin which is exposed to open shame, to provide an atonement means to cover it. Now atonement's not just to cover it, like a little kid might go in his room and you tell them, hey, clean up your room, and they just shove it all under the bed, see I cleaned up the room. This isn't a a throwing things under the bed, by covering it what we mean is this which is deserving of, of justice, this which is wicked, this which is deserving of a just punishment, the punishment has been Placed, It has been fulfilled. It has been satisfied. The reason the sin can be covered is because there was a price paid to do away with it. There will be an atonement. There will be a, a, a covering for sin which will restore and reconcile the sinner into a right relationship with God, where God is both just in dealing with sin and justifier in dealing with a sinner. It says not only this, these three have to do with Daniel's prayer specifically about the sin of Israel, but then he says beyond that, there's going to usher in everlasting righteousness. The, at the end of these 490 years, not only is sin done away with, not only is the separation that sin brings between people and God paid for and covered, but righteousness is going to be everlasting. It's going to be a time where only the right thing happens, where righteousness reigns. To seal up vision and prophecy, it's an interesting term and you can go two ways with it, either meaning there's going to come a point where all there is no more new prophecy. Prophecy ceases. Well, we know that's true. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the final revelation. There's no more revelation of God to us as human beings because Jesus is the final and perfect revelation. So those who've come afterward and said, well, we have a new prophecy about who God is, we know those to be false. And make no mistake, many of the major religions and cults have done just that, from Islam to Mormonism to Jehovah's Witness. We have these new revelations. There is no new revelation. There is no new prophecy. Jesus has come, and He is the final revelation can mean that. It can also mean a little bit of a different way. To seal up something is when the royal ruler takes his signet ring and he places his seal on the document, meaning it is authentic, it is real. To seal up prophecy means everything that God has said that will happen, that has yet to be, that would be prophecy. Everything that God has said will happen, God is going to place his seal, his signature of authentication, meaning it's all going to happen, there will be no prophecy in Scripture left unfulfilled. Now you say, well, which is it, Pastor? Well, really, both of those are the two sides of the same coin. There is no more new prophecy. Jesus was the final revelation. We live in between His first and His second coming. And there is no prophecy left unfulfilled in Scripture that will not come to fulfill. It's both and to anoint a most holy place, to set apart a a holy dwelling place, a new place. So says, these six things are going to happen at the end of 490 years. And he said, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree. And here's what he's going to say, and I'm going to summarize to, to try to confuse us the least. But here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, here's what's going on. There's going to be a decree that goes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. From the time that decree goes out, you're going to have seven sevens. That would be 49 years for all of you non-math people. 49 years. There's going to be 49 years from that decree. And in that time, the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, restored, safe to dwell in. But it will be a time of opposition and distress. And then there's going to be 62 sevens. There's going to be 62 sevens that are then going to go by. That's 434 years. That math's a little harder to do on the top of my head, so I have a cheat sheet. There's going to be another 434 years that go by, and then after that 60 second. Seven, the Messiah, the anointed one, and not just any, but the anointed one, it says the Messiah and the Prince, the Messiah King, the one who is ruler, the one who is royal, the one who reigns, who is the anointed, the one set apart, anointed by God, the Messiah, he's going to come, and specifically, here's what it says, that he will be cut off. Which immediately harkens us back to a passage like Isaiah 53 where it says that the suffering servant will be cut off from the land of the living. It speaks of the fact that the Messiah who is coming, the anointed one of God who is ruler, who is royal, He will be killed and have nothing, meaning it will seem like He dies and what He's supposed to bring doesn't happen because we know when the Messiah came His nation abandoned, his his nation crucified him, and his disciples abandoned him. And after this point, this is what happens to the Messiah, and then there's going to come, and it speaks of the people of the prince who is to come. It says that there there is another prince, not the Messiah prince, but there's another prince, lowercase p. Who will come later on and the people that he will come from, they're going to come and attack Jerusalem. They're going to attack the temple and its end, the end of Jerusalem will be like a flood. It will just level everything. Well, that's happened. In 70 A.D., General Titus of the Roman armies came flooding into Jerusalem, leveled the whole city, pushed down the, the temple. If you, go, if you go to the Temple Mount today, you will find all sorts of excavation and ruins of pieces of the temple that were once way up high that are now just on the ground because they brazed it all to the ground. Now both of these things, after, the, after these first 483 years, the 7-7 seven seven plus the 62 sevens, after these 483 years, boom, the Messiah comes. He's cut off, he's put to death, it seems like his people have rejected him, the the city of Jerusalem will be leveled, and then it speaks about this, this final seven years. There seems to be a gap in between them and that the prince who is to come, lowercase p, who we know as, in Daniel 7, the little horn, from 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness, from Revelation 13, the beast, That is, 1 John 2, the Antichrist, will step into the scene, and he will enter into a covenant, it says, with the people of Israel. He will do what no one has done in history, and he will bring from a geopolitical scale peace to the Middle East. And he will enable a temple to be reconstructed on the Temple Mount because they will be able to do sacrifices and grain offerings, which can only happen at the temple. Those don't take place today because there is no temple. Somehow, the Antichrist will step on the scene, he'll enter into an agreement, a covenant with the people of Israel that will bring seeming peace with the surrounding nations, that will allow a temple to be rebuilt, that will, that will enable sacrifice to take place because halfway through that week, halfway through that seven years, three and a half years in, the one who will seem like a messiah to the people of Israel will turn on them and he will bring absolute desolation and destruction until the time of his obliteration, which according to Daniel has been decreed, set in stone. So all of a sudden here is this snapshot of the rest of the history of Israel. Now. How do we calculate all this? What's, what's happened? What hadn't happened? Well, let me just give you. There's You either have to take the years as literal or symbolic, and I'm going to make it real simple for you today. If you've got questions, email me, or likely just make a visit because it's going to be hard to write all of it down in an email. They're not symbolic. They're literal. So you've got two options. The decree to set Israel forward, the decree to do that is either from Artaxerxes first when he decreed in Ezra chapter 7 to send Ezra back to finish the temple and reinstate proper worship in five, uh, on, in 458 B.C. It means 49 years later, the, the work of Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild is restored, and then if, from another three, 434 years from there, it takes you right up to A.D. 26 or 27, which if you hold that Jesus was crucified in 30 A.D. means it takes you right up to his baptism and public anointing as Messiah. Or your other option is Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5, because Ezra technically was instructed to rebuild the temple, not the city. Uh, instead, in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah is going to hear the city's in ruin. He's going to go to Artaxerxes, same king, and say, I want to go back and rebuild it. Artaxerxes is going to write down some letters to give him official permission to rebuild the city, and he will go back. And he will go back and begin the process of rebuilding in 4, uh, 445 BC. And if you understand, there's an idea that that you go through uh, when you look in Scripture that a thing called a prophetic year. We live by solar years, 365 days, but there's the idea in Scripture of a prophetic year, which is 360 days. And if you go from the date that Nehemiah was given permission to rebuild the city and you use 360-day years, it's going to take you right up to Palm Sunday, A.D. 33, when if you hold to a later date for Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy as the people said Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, only to be cut off and crucified five days later. Now you go, Pastor, which one is it? Well, it's whichever one is right based on the actual day of Jesus' crucifixion, which is either 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., but Scripture didn't give us the year. and It wasn't marked down. What what you need to see and understand, though, is with precise precision, God has said, I have set aside this amount of time, and at the end of this amount of time, just like Jeremiah, you're recognizing I said 70 years, and that 70 years is coming to a fulfillment. I'm telling you, there's this many years. From the time this decree goes out, there's going to be 483 years, and the Messiah steps on the scene. That Messiah will be king, that Messiah will be my anointed one, and that Messiah will be killed. We know these things have happened. We know that the Messiah has come. Atonement for iniquity has been made. Jesus shed His blood on the cross. Your sins can be covered. Your shame, which is exposed before God, can be covered and dealt with because of the blood of Christ on the cross. So we we know that there is no more new prophecy. So one, one and a half of the six things have already taken place. The rest of those, the other four and a half, Haven't yet happened yet. Sin still reigns. Everlasting righteousness hasn't come in. The Lord hasn't returned. Those things will happen at the return of Christ, which follows this final seven-year period where, as we said, the Antichrist, one who is cunning, will step on the scene just like Antiochus Epiphanes, empowered by the enemy, Daniel chapter 8. This little horn, Daniel chapter 7, will step on the scene. He will conspire against God's people. He will enter into a covenant, and then halfway through, he will show himself to be a horror And in many ways, Satan incarnate unleashed on the earth. See, God answers Daniel and says, I want you to understand what I'm actually up to, Daniel. My solution for for the, the people of Israel is not to get them back to the land. My solution is to send a Messiah who will die for their sin. Not just their sin, but the sin of the whole world who will provide an atonement for their sin, who, who in providing atonement for their sin will enable sinners to be transformed and made new, who will, who will enable a, 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 an age of everlasting righteousness to usher in, who will not only do that but will crush any and all opposition. Why? Did you catch it? There's been five times, little clue words, because I have said it. And church family understand when when God tells Daniel, I want you to understand what I'm up to. I'm up to something much bigger than just getting everybody back to the promised land. The reason that God's solution happens is because God does what he says and no one can stop him. God does what He says, no one can stop Him. Five times the same word, decree, word, command is used. God wants it clear to us, church family, that what He says always comes to pass because He's the one who says it, period. He possesses all power, He's almighty, He possesses all control, He is sovereign. He does not speak falsely, He doesn't speak carelessly. What He decrees is, and no one can talk back and alter His command because He's God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So I have sent my word out, and it will accomplish what I have sent it out for. He says in Isaiah, remember the former things long past, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. What God says happens, not just because he's faithful to his word. We saw that last week. God is faithful to his word. But what God says happens, happens because he's faithful to do it and he can do it. And it doesn't matter who tries to stand up and say, I don't like that plan, God. It doesn't change a thing. So what do you and I do? How are we to respond? It's easy to come to this passage and get all caught up in all of the prophecy and, oh, look how cool. Look how it's, it's so precise and it, and it lines up right with this date and, and all and all there. But God's heart is so much more than just getting caught up in all the questions of prophecy. It's understand what I'm doing and understand why it's gonna happen. So what are we supposed to do, church family? We've gotta heed God's word. We've gotta heed God's word. We've gotta use our minds. We've gotta walk in the Holy Spirit to understand what God's word says, to understand what God is actually up to. We have got to bank our lives, church family, on what he says, how he says it. His Word is trustworthy. His Word is true. Understand church family how amazing it is. God makes things clear. He speaks. He gives His Word. He doesn't leave us in the dark, but He calls us to understand His Word. He calls us to use our minds to engage with it, to ponder it, to search it out, to interpret it consistently and correctly. Scripture's not just a devotional book for me to read a verse and go, hmm, what does that mean to me today? This is why we've done so much and we will continue to offer and do things to train you how to just read your Bible. That's what he tells Daniel. Daniel, I didn't just come to give you an answer. I didn't just come. I came to give you a message and you need to understand it. You need to set yourself just like you You were seeking to understand Jeremiah's prophecy and as you were processing and meditating on it, you realize you need to do the same thing here, church family. We've got to know what he says. It means we've got to read it We've got to think about what he says. It means we've got to meditate on it and pray on it. We've got to do what he says. Obey it. And we've got to cling to what he says, meaning we've got to rest in faith on it, even when his word seems to fail. Because sometimes it seems like God moves slow. Do you realize from the time Daniel got this word to the time Jesus came was a little over 500 years? Now, I did some approximation with my math. It would be the equivalent of God giving this word, you ready for this, to Gutenberg in 1440. And then Jesus returning today. Do you realize how long of a period of time 1440 is? That was the year Gutenberg patented the printing press. It was 52 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It was 77 years before Martin Luther nailed the 99 thesis to the wall. At the time in Central America, the Aztec, Mayan, and Inca empires reigned. There had been no Queen Elizabeth, Beethoven, or Mozart. The American Revolution is another 336 years away. It would be easy to go, God are you just not gonna fulfill your word? Church family, God is not late or slow. He fulfills his word precisely when he intends to and there is no one who can thwart it. And like Daniel, we've gotta be found heeding his word. That's why I said, we gotta read it. We gotta meditate on it. We gotta know how to study it and interpret it rightly. We've got to heed and bank our life on his word so that, in heeding his word, we can recognize what he's actually doing. Do you realize, Israel is fully aware of this precise prophecy. Here's Daniel, God, you said 70 years, I'm looking at the calendar, it's been 68, it's getting close. Why was there nobody? Hey God, you said 483 years from the decree, I'm sitting here reading your word, heeding it, the Messiah's here. All of Israel had access to this prophecy. It was well known. Josephus, who's one of our early historians, who's a Jew, he understood the the destruction of the temple that came like a flood to uh, to be the sacking of the temple by Rome in AD 70. He understood things in similarly the same way we do, yet he didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. We've got to recognize what God is up to. And church family, so many times we think as believers if we just knew the future, it would help us live with better priorities. The truth is we know the future and we're too busy and disinterested most of the time to live rightly. We think if we just had fill in the blank, we would be okay. If we just had more friends, the loneliness of our soul would disappear. If we just had more money, life would be a lot less stressful. If we were just married, there would be no temptation, sexual temptation. If we just put so-and-so in office, our world would get back on track or it would move to where it should be. Listen, church family, we need to understand what God reveals here, that the core problem with human, humankind is, is not a lack of fill-in-the-blank, but it's an empty hole where sin enslaves us from conception and condemns us to death. The core problem with mankind is our sinful nature, which eternally separates us relationally from God and produces sinful actions, which then condemn us to an eternal separation from God and death. God's solution for this world, church family, is not the election of a politician, but the crucifixion of the king. His solution is not the pacification of our fragile egos, but the sending of the anointed one to pay the price of his wrath, to purchase lost image-bearers off of sin's the slave block of sin, out of death, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness, to bring us to the kingdom of light and righteousness, to seat us at the table of God, to restore us to a right personal and eternal relationship with God, to adopt us as sons and daughters of the Most High forever. This is the solution of God. Now, let me be clear, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to have desires. I'm not trying to say, well, this is God's solution, so anything you ever feel, you just just go back and say, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, that takes care of it. Listen, let me give you an example. You should probably want to get married if you're going to get married. I would highly encourage you, don't get married if you don't want to get married. That's a bad idea. There's nothing wrong with the desire to be married. There is something wrong with Worshiping the desire to be married. There is something wrong with thinking the desire to be married will satisfy every longing of your soul and fix every insecurity and problem you have. There's nothing wrong with having desires. There's something wrong with when we look to the fulfillment of those desires to satisfy. Listen, there is only in knowing and loving and following Him who first knows, loves, and leads us will there be satisfaction and fulfillment. It also doesn't mean that if for every need we just, get, we just give a pat answer. I've got a headache. Well, you just, need to, you just need to reflect on the gospel, son. No, I've got a headache. Go take some Advil. And if it keeps going on, maybe go see a chiropractor. There are some needs that are just practical. And whether it's needs we face or or needs that we minister to, listen, James said, when someone comes to you and says, I don't have any food, I am hungry, I don't have any clothing, I am cold, don't you dare say, well, be blessed in Jesus' name and walk on, get them some food. So we don't want to abuse what I'm saying here and take it to crazy weird spiritual applications it doesn't mean, but what we do mean is when it comes to the true problem that is in our hearts, when it comes to the true problem that is in this world, when it comes to the true issues of identity and value, of purpose, of meaning, of how to live and walk and move in life, we need His solution, not fill in the blank. His solution makes us new and washes shame away. His solution fills us to live with righteousness. His solution convicts us of sin. It produces holy fruit within us. It sustains us with His grace. It gives us words to witness. And it gives meaning, purpose, value, and identity to every last part of our life. But are we looking in the wrong places? Are we so busy in our own busyness that we miss the fact that God's given us a calendar to tell us exactly what's going down? Have we missed him? Are we not recognizing what he's up to? Church family, we don't need a land. We need a solution for our sin, which will enable a restoration to and a communion with God. And when we understand this, then we must respond. If you really understand that we've got to heed what His Word really says, because what He says is going to happen. We've got to recognize what He's up to, because it's about His solution, not our fill in the blank. When we un- when we, when we, then we're left with a place of having to respond. And let me just make it real simple. There's one of two, two people that or two ways to respond. Either you're responding as someone who does not know Jesus Christ personally. You're, you're still living, born and bound, but an enslaved to the sin you were born in. Listen, you can, maybe you're the one who walks the religious path. You play the religious game. You know the truth. You lived your life hearing the truth. You're looking for a land of religion and not the atonement of a Messiah, just like the Jewish people. Can I tell you, you are not saved by your family of origin. You are not saved by your church attendance. You are not restored to God on the basis of righteous deeds. There's only one way to be reconciled to God, by grace through faith. And today would be a great day to respond to him in that way. For those of us who have responded, who are in salvation, we got to respond with a hope-filled humility and a courageous faithfulness. We've got to live with hope, church family. We know the future. And hope means something that is coming in the future, which is absolutely certain. There's no chance it doesn't happen, and because of it, because of that reality, it impacts every way I live and move and breathe now. We've got to live with a hope, church family, now just to be clear. I don't mean we've got to live quasi-monastic lives. Sometimes we go, oh, we've got to live in light of Jesus is coming. We've got to, and that means we're going to all get together and just have youth camp 24-7. Well, i got news for you. We can't have youth camp 24-7. In fact, there's some people in Thessalonica that did the same thing, and Paul wrote them and said, what are you doing? Yes, Jesus is coming back. So get off your rear end, get back in your job, and work hard. But as you go back and work hard in your job, don't you dare let your success in that job determine your value and identity. You find your value and identity in the solution of Christ. And you work hard in that job unto the glory of God. You work hard in that job to better the culture around you. You work hard in that job to witness to His gospel to your coworkers. You go back to school. You go back to work. You go back to play. But not to find value and identity, but just the joy of getting to do and use and the gifts and talents God has given you because your value and identity is in Christ. Use your time. Use your giftings. Use your finances. But not to live for the materialism of culture, but to cheerfully give unto the service of the Lord. Church family, if we live with hope, we don't retreat into monasticism, but we live regular lives in normal spheres that are transformed and different with different priorities, with different values. It means we take in current events differently. We do not allow ourselves to sink into the pit of seemingly permanent despair at the ever horrible news of the world. But like Daniel, we read the 70 years are are coming up and we spring into action by refusing the king's table, by loving pagan kings, and having the courage to speak hard truth to them by standing rather than bowing to the idols and facing the furnace, by being faithful in prayer even if it means being thrown in the lion's den, by clinging to the word. Church family, we don't allow ourselves to sink, but we, we walk with a humility before the Lord, a hope-filled life with a courageous faithfulness and understand, church family, there's going to be days that's hard. And in my passion up here, I'm not in any way trying to act like it's easy. And the last month, I've watched people I love die. I've lived through a murder trial for a family member. To say I, I, I never want to live that again, only to know that I've got another family member murdered who still has not been arrested and and... Had sleepless nights. I've watched things in the world go from bad to worse. I have faced fears. I feel insecurities that come up that would take me to my knees and make me go, God, just fill me and consume me with doubt. And church family, when that happens, I don't think I'm any different than any one of you. And what we have to do in that moment, if we're really going to understand what this passage in the seventy sevens tells us, is in that moment I have to, I have to cut through all of that. God, what does your word say? And whether I feel it, whether I see it, I'm going to bank my life on it because you are who you say you are. You do what you say you're going to do and you will not fail. Which also gives me the freedom to just go, Lord, this is really hard and I'm just going to weep in front of you because you also don't fail to comfort those who are in affliction. And just like Jesus, you didn't fail to tell Martha you're the resurrection and the life. You didn't fail to weep with Mary and you didn't fail to call Lazarus out of the grave. Doesn't mean stuff isn't hard, doesn't mean you can't cry, doesn't mean there's not hard things, but it means I heed the word of God so that I recognize what God is actually up to. And it's not my fill in the blank, it's his solution, so that then I will respond in living a life filled with humble hope and courageous faithfulness, just like Daniel. Church family, we live in a great story. And there is a sovereign director who is moving the epic of human history to a determined, decreed, precise end. May we be found not saying, God, why are you late? But may we be found faithful and humble before his throne as we await his return. Jesus, we look to you. You know what you're up to in this time and in this place. You know how you're stirring our hearts. You know what you're doing. So, Lord, those who need encouragement, may they heed your encouragement. May those who are convicted, may we heed your conviction and respond in repentance just like we see Daniel. Father, for those that don't know you, whether in this room or watching online, God, may they not play around. None of us are promised tomorrow if they know they don't know you and they know and understand that Jesus, you've paid the price for them. Lord, may they bow right where they're at and may they recognize they need to know you as Lord and they need you to be their Savior in order to do so. And may in faith they ask you to to save them. And Lord, then may they share that so that we may walk with them as family in Christ. Jesus, however we need to respond, Holy Spirit, I trust you are moving and stirring. May you be praised, Lord, and may you find us faithful. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.